Well, we read 2 Kings 22, and it starts by saying, Josiah was eight years old. Okay, do we have any Josiahs here? I don't know. Any Josiahs? Raise your hand if you're a Josiah. A middle name Josiah there? All right. Do we have any eight-year-olds? There we go. I see some eight-year-old hands. Okay, wait. Keep your hands up. If you're eight, keep your hands up. Okay, now stand up on your chair. Stand up on your chair. That's okay. Okay, now I want everybody to look around. None of these children are named Josiah, but they are eight. Josiah was eight. This gives you a very intuitive feel for an eight-year-old king, doesn't it? Okay, you guys can sit down. Good job. Look at those obedient children. Scary thought having an eight-year-old king, isn't it? Eight years old, and the next verse starts, He did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. So if you're eight years old, or younger, or older, you can have Josiah as your model. A young man, I don't even think we can give him that. A boy. A boy who was king, but that's not your goal. If you want to be like him, you want to be like him with verse 2. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David. Nor did he turn aside to the right, because you're right, or to the left. What a beautiful thing to hear of this new king who comes after two in a row who were so bad that all of the reform work of Hezekiah had to be redone. All the reform work, all of the, all of the ending of idolatry and of false worship, it all had to be redone. And, and Hezekiah was Josiah's great-grandfather. So just a couple of generations back, Lots and lots of people still around who remember Hezekiah when Josiah takes the throne at eight years old. He did right in the sight of the Lord. And he begins to reform worship. He has to begin to do that work again that Hezekiah had done of cleansing the land of its wickedness, cleansing the land of its sin. 
Sometimes when we face a uh, big shift after four years of one leader of our nation and all of a sudden there's a totally different direction that the nation is going and it, it can feel like whiplash, right? Sometimes I think, I don't know, the, the nation can't change that much in four years. But look at the whiplash that we've got from Hezekiah, the, the glorious king who walks in the footsteps. That's some real whiplash. And then back to Josiah reforming everything again. It can happen quickly, can't it? It only takes one change and everything's different. One new ruler makes a vast difference in the nation of Judah at this time. And so our chapter goes through the beginning of his life very quickly. I mean, the beginning of his rule very quickly. And uh, verse 3, we get right to the 18th year of his reign. So, he started at 8 years old. And he ruled for 8 years. And then he ruled for 8 more years. And then he ruled for 2 more years. And that's where the story picks up. Why do I emphasize the fact that we've skipped through 18 years? Well, because chapter 22 and 23 put things chronologically out of order. We've been hitting this fairly regularly with the emphasis that Kings is trying to make for us. What it wants us to see is this very foundational, fundamental part of King Josiah's reign, which was the rediscovery of the book of the law, right? So it, it's skipping as quickly as possible. It's like, okay, we got a new, we got we to at least tell you who this guy is, right? Tell you that he was good, and then what are we trying to get to? We're trying to get to the finding of the book of the law, and how he responds when it is found. So by the time that Josiah is doing temple renovations, he's already collected money in the temple, enough money for the work to begin, a major renovation work, right? Takes a fair bit of money. So it's clear that worship reform under Josiah has been happening for some time. He's 18 years in, and we'll read more about the reforms that he's been doing during those first 18 years in the next chapter, because it gets, like I said, chronologically placed later. But many of them have already been happening by the time this particular part of the story comes. What 
we are intended to focus on and see here as Josiah is introduced is the finding of the book of the law and the response that Josiah has when it is read to him. We saw the renovations start. We saw how um, Hilkiah begins the work and how the people who are doing the work are trusted with the money. We've seen this in the past. And then Hilkiah saying to the high priest, I, I mean Hilkiah, the high priest saying to the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Verse 8. Now, there's two ways that you can respond to this. You can say, as, as a reader, I mean, as, as you read this story, you can say, wow, they found the book of the law. That's awesome. Or you can do what people have done since the 18th century all over the world and said, well, it says that they found the book of the law, but we know better. Actually, what happened was that Hilkiah was seeking political power, and so he decided that he was going to be very manipulative and write a book so that he could gain influence over the king and his actions and raise the temple in importance and the place of the priests to rulership. And so he fraudulently claimed that Moses had written a book that he actually wrote. Not very obvious to me. Why do I bring up what idiots say? So that you won't be an idiot. That's it. And so that you won't be intimidated by idiots. It's really stupid to say that God's word says, but actually I know better. And this is just one of a million places where we can say, well, God's word says... But you understand, I know better. We can do it with the facts, like here's what happened. The book of the law was found. Or we can do it with the commands. Or we can, we can do it with the judgments and the warnings. Well, God says fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. But you understand I know better. You see, there's a lot of places where we can do this. And it's easy to look at the academics in Germany 200 years ago and say, well, they must have been stupid. But are you doing the same thing? Are we doing the same thing? I think there's a place where we're tempted to do the very same thing and where Josiah gives us a great example of doing the opposite, right, in this passage. Where he, he hears what God's word says, 
And he takes it seriously. He believes that it's true. Isn't, it, isn't that the best part of Josiah? It's certainly what the author of Kings wants us to focus on as the defining thing about how Josiah ruled. Yeah, all of, we'll get into all of his reforms, but it was how he responded to God's word that was at the heart of what made Josiah a good king. And so how did Josiah respond to God's law? It's read, it's taken from the temple into his presence and it's read before him, right? And you could imagine him responding a variety of different ways. You could hear him saying, burn it. And that's what his son, Jehoiakim, does. Can you imagine? The same thing happens. It's not a rediscovered book of the law, but it's a message from God directly through a prophet written onto a scroll and brought into his presence and read soberly because the priest and the people are shocked by its contents the same way that this content is shocking. And they want the king to hear it and to respond by taking it seriously, responding by faith the way that Josiah does. But his son says, here, give me that. And he slices off the bottom, burns it. Slices off the next part, and he burns it. So it's not hard to imagine a king being displeased with what God says is going to happen to his kingdom, right? Displeased with the fact that God's word says judgment will come on such a nation displeased and angry about it. Burn that thing. I don't want to ever hear it again. Praise God, Josiah doesn't respond with anger at God's word. You could easily see him saying, well, I've been reforming worship for 18 years, so obviously this doesn't apply to me. When my life is written, it's going to say that I followed in the footsteps of my father David, so clearly the warning of God's judgment coming on his people if they sin doesn't bother me. I'm not one of the evil people. That was my father and my grandfather. And all of those other people, and I've been stopping them. But that's not how he responds. He doesn't respond with, 
Who paid for this? Who, who put you up to this? This is foreign election interference. Like Jennifer Gross, the Republican representative for Westchester said about our issue one vote. Yeah, it's clearly some idiot in California's fault that Ohioans voted for abortion. Right? It's the, it's the billionaires out there. We are good people. Actually. The different ways that we can respond. Josiah responds by humbling himself. He tears his clothes. He acknowledges what it says about God's people in God's land and the promised land that he gave them and whether they obey or don't, whether they live according to his commands or don't, whether they worship the idols of the nations that were pushed out of the land or don't, whether they seek the Lord and follow him with all their heart or don't, right? All those things that are written about that are warned in Exodus and Deuteronomy and all over the, the, the law, right? They apply to us. That's us. We are that people. And that's scary. And so he tears his clothes. And he says... This is what we have done. We have broken God's law. So I want to put a hypothetical in front of you. Do you know what a hypothetical is, kids? It's something I can put in front of you, apparently. Hypothetical, yeah, go ahead. And if, yeah, it's a, it's a, a, a hypothetical is something that could be, something that could have been, but you have to imagine it. So what I'm basically saying is, imagine this. You're at the grocery store with your mom, and then she's gone. You can imagine that, can't you? Some of you have experienced that. You don't have to imagine that. Well, imagine this. Imagine if we had defeated issue one. Okay. You're all with me now, right? Imagine if instead of being 56 or 7%, whatever it was, in favor, it had been 56 or 7% against all right, that would have been something worth writing home about, right? I mean, that would have been glorious. That would have been good. That would have been something worth celebrating. And then, having done the work of opposing this wicked law, and having prayed, and having seen it defeated 
Imagine that I read to you the next Sunday, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, and if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry and my anger will be kindled. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. In this hypothetical, how would you respond? Because that's about the situation that Josiah was in. He had been reforming the worship. He had defeated issue one. He had been ending idolatry. And then he read this from Exodus 22. Would we tear our clothes? If we heard that after we defeated issue one? Or would we pat ourselves on the back? That 43% of the people who live around us want to see children murdered. That abortion is legal in our state. In some instances. But not in as many as it was. Or not as bad as it could have been. Could we really celebrate? Would we really pat ourselves on the back? We could really celebrate. We could not really pat ourselves on the back. You see, any restraining of bloodshed is good and is worth celebrating. And Josiah will read about the glories of his reforms and the work that he did. And they are celebrated. But Josiah does not pat himself on the back as though he had accomplished the protection of his nation, as though he had accomplished the perfection of his nation, as though he had nothing to fear. He tore his clothes. And he sent the high priest, the scribe that read it to him, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Ahikam, the son of the scribe, and Asaiah, the king's servant. He sends a commission of some important men, men, the high priest, the scribe, their helpers. Go, inquire of the Lord for me. For me and all the people, and all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. 
he tears his clothes because his fathers have not listened to the words of this book. And we think that because we elected somebody this year, that that means that everything's good and fine. What? The land is covered with blood. It's horrible. The guilt of the nation goes back generation after generation after generation after generation. We say, well, that was them. That's not me. And we look and it's all around us and we say, well, that's all them, not me, not us. We're holy. And we read the words of the law and we pat ourselves on the back. And Josiah owns the sin of the people and of his father and of his grandfather. And he says, God's wrath is great on us because of that. That sin, that blood, give vengeance to through his judgment and his wrath. I believe God. He's going to do it. Go ask him about it. He doesn't say, I didn't know. I, I didn't do it either, by the way. So obviously, God won't pour out his promised judgment. No, he says, Go inquire of the Lord for me. Great is the wrath of the Lord that burns against us. Because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. People who are conservative, reformed Christians, which is what we are. There's a lot of talk about how we're not responsible for the sins of the generations that came before us. And that there shouldn't ever be any obligation on us to confess or repent or apologize for what our nation has done in the past. How can I say I'm sorry for what my great-great-grandfather did? It doesn't even make sense. But there's something in here about the guilt that just rests on the land, isn't there? It's inescapable. It's still just there and it's never been dealt with. And so he tears his clothes. He sends to the Lord. And God responds through the prophetess, Huldah. He responds 
by saying, yeah, I said it. Yeah, I meant it. Yeah, I'm going to do it. My wrath and my judgment are coming. I will judge this people who have rejected me and served idols instead. For generations, they have, as we saw last week, you know, been ticking me off. Been doing the thing that could irritate me most. And then what does he say? But I will delay it because of your humility. Because of your tears. I will delay it because of your humility, because of your tears. Not because you've done reform work. You know why God says. Not because you followed in the footsteps of your father, David. Not because you departed from the footsteps of your father, I forgot his father's name. Kings, they always just, they're gone right out of my head. And your grandfather, who was so terrible. No, because of what? Verse 19, because your heart was tender. Because your heart was tender. And you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants. That they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I truly have heard you. So will we respond with pride when we hear that God's wrath is heavy on our nation because we didn't do it. Because we voted against it. No. We'll humble ourselves like Josiah because he's what we want to be like, right? And we'll say, Oh God, please be merciful. We know what it should look like. We know what you've said is coming. But God, be merciful to us. And if that's the case, when Josiah, who has done the reforms, who is cleansing the nation, who's putting idolatry away, who's followed perfectly in David's footsteps, who's like Hezekiah, only more so, then how much more should we respond that way if we can't even get a a no vote on issue one? Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place. I truly have heard you.
We want to be heard by God when we, when we cry out. When we, when we look full in the face of what the, the wrath of God is poured out on injustice, on bloodthirsty guilt, on innocent blood shed, what does he say is coming? His wrath, destruction. That's what he says. Do we believe him or not? If we believe him, we ought to respond with humility. Or are we going to be like the 18th century German academics who say, well, I know it says that, but you have to understand, we know better. So we have to respond with the humility of Josiah. Our nation is wicked. Our fathers are guilty. Even we are guilty. It's been going on for generations now. And no reform of Roe v. Wade being overturned is enough as we've so clearly seen this last week. But we should have seen it even if the vote had gone the other way, is what I want you to remember. And I'm not sure I would have. I don't think I would have preached this sermon. I would have been so excited that I might have just missed it. And, hey, reforms are worth celebrating. But this comes first. Not in the order of time, but because the author wants us to remember this is, this is what made all the difference, actually. And therefore, verse 20, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes will not see all the evil which I bring on this place. Kind of reminds you of what God said to Hezekiah, doesn't it? That's good news, isn't it? So if we respond with humility, God responds by raising up the humble. And he pushes down the proud. Do you want his hands to be heavy on you? Raise yourself up and be proud. You guys know that all of those motivational posters that you see in doctor's offices and stuff, my favorites are the demotivational posters. And there's one that's this beautiful manicured lawn taken from right at grass level. And you can see all the blades of grass are nice and even except one that's sticking up. And it says... The tallest blade of grass is the first to get cut. I like them because I'm a cynic and I'm sarcastic. But you know what? If you raise yourself up, God opposes the proud. And he gives grace 
to the humble. And Josiah was humble, and God was gracious to him. And so if we are humble, God will be gracious to us. There's no doubt about that. What his grace will be, I can't tell you. But I can tell you there, he has a habit. You can see it in Kings of saying, okay, not you. Not your generation. The next one. And you know, if, if Josiah's son had said, well, I'll be humble. You think God would have had trouble deciding what to do? No. He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. And so, he says, I, God says, I will delay it because of your humility. Because of your tears. And it seems to me this could go on forever. Generation after generation after generation. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? You don't want to live under this perpetual, the judgment is coming. But isn't that what we live under? The judgment is coming. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. It's waiting for somebody just to come and chop. The tree goes down. Who wants forever delayed judgment hanging over their head? We need a final solution. And you know what? Yeah, the judgment is coming, but we have been given the grace that's permanent. We have received the Savior. God has provided the answer. And God swore the cross and said, I am guilty, like Josiah did. I'm guilty. We're guilty. We deserve God's wrath. Those are the only people that can be forgiven. Nobody else will be forgiven. They remain with nothing but the expectation of the judgment of God and the wrath that he will pour out on the unbelieving. But if we, having died with Christ, as we'll see pictured in a little bit, with a baptism that will be like death, because it's cold. We have died with Christ. And we have the promise that we will be raised up and have been raised up in newness of life. The grace that Josiah receives is nothing compared to the grace that we have in Christ Jesus for all eternity. And it's not a perpetually delayed judgment that we are sitting under. We're no longer under the wrath of God and under the judgment because he's poured it out on Christ Jesus. And that's not some promise about America not being judged. It's a promise that if America is judged, it means that you die 
that you will receive the imperishable inheritance of Christ Jesus. And you'll be with him for all eternity.